Cause we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers number one Yes, we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers to Battle Red Radio. Tonight, I'm joined by the big man himself, Tim. I guess for this episode, we're going to kind of wrap up the 2020 season and everything that uh, just kind of sort of happened. And so kind of the biggest thing for me this last year was that in the offseason, the Texans got worse. They lost Tayshawn Gibson and DJ Reed in free agency. They turned DeAndre Hopkins into Brandon Cooks, David Johnson, and kind of sort of Ross Blacklock. Um, and the point here is that the 2019 Texans weren't a great team. They're a fortunate team that went 9-3 one-score games, including the postseason. And this year, they went 2-7 and seven in such contests, including the newest 41-38 loss to Tennessee Titans. And so that takes us to our, our first listener question, Tim. And it's from at uh, Tyron I. Tut. I don't know how to say it. Something like that. <laughs> and uh, he asks, can you think of a more poetic way for the Texans' season to finish uh, other than how that game ended yesterday? No, that, that's about as good as it gets. I mean, I, you know, the sad part is I was I was watching the game with my dad and, and I we were going back and forth about how much time was left and did they leave, you know, the Titans should have scored quicker. If you're a Texans fan, you hope the Titans score quicker. So you give Deshaun time to score and you don't want them to score too quick. And then when the t- Texans scored, I said to my dad, said, well, I guess we're going to overtime. And I said something effective. Well, there's, there's 18 seconds left and they only need probably about – you know, 40 or 50 yards to get into field goal range, I think there's an excellent chance that they still figure out a way to lose this. And then, of course, you know, very next play, A.J. Moore bites and they get behind him. And all of a sudden now it's a makeable field goal for a guy that wasn't on a roster last week. And he somehow manages to hit it off the upright in. I mean, it's it, you, you really you really couldn't write it any better than that. Well, and the funny thing about that field goal, too, is that he hit it, like, dead on also. And then, like, somehow it spun, like, through the post in some weird, bizarre way. And I've never seen a field goal like that before. Uh, but I did have a, a saving Silverman screen cap to post about going in overtime just for you. And I was very <laughs> excited for it. And uh, I didn't get that. And I was like, wait, I'm not going to post a shed because there, are, there nope. are 18 seconds left. And we know how this thing is going all season. So... I'll have to save that for the postseason, I guess. Yeah, no, that's that's we'll, we'll save it for next year when Deshaun actually somehow manages to overcome all the garbage around him to maybe lead them to a respectable season once again. Or whenever the Titans play the Ravens in overtime this Sunday, uh, I can also either way for that too. <laughs> You're calling it, huh? I don't know. I've, I haven't I haven't looked enough into the numbers, and I have some things to go back and watch before I have. I don't have any strong feelings on the postseason this weekend, aside from I was. Uh, Josh Allen needs to beat the Colts. That's something that matters well, to me. You know, and I was that was part of the thing that had me so excited about the Texans potentially winning is it would have meant that the Colts win the division, but more importantly, Tennessee would have had to go on the road at Buffalo next week. And I thought that that would have just been an absolute slaughter. It was very disappointing that instead of the tech, the Titans having to take that medicine, it's going to be the Colts. Yeah, I think it would have been a slaughter too. And I, my heart would have been broken the entire time having to watch, you know, like my 2A and 2B favorite teams have to play against each other this early in the postseason. Well, I, I think there's probably some people out there that would say 1A and 1B, and the Texans are probably like, you know, 8C. I don't know. It depends on what day it is. It depends. No, you, you're, you're love, you, you loved, I mean, you were 
You were the most hipster of all when it came to Josh Allen. You loved him way before it was cool. Even when he didn't look like he could play quarterback at this level, you insisted that he had something. And I think you've been vindicated this year because he's looked like a real honest-to-God NFL quarterback. I mean, he's, he's, he's got no shot of winning the MVP, but he's, without a doubt, I would say, what do you think, third or fourth most deserving candidate? Yeah, I think it'd be third. I think you go Rodgers and Mahomes and Allen. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And maybe some people would say that Henry deserves it before uh, Allen uh, this year based on just this, the the 2000 yard season. But Allen's just been I never in a million years would have thought that he could have had the kind of season he had this year. And for him to do it this quickly and look so good doing it all. You know, he's obviously grown a ton. And I think Brian Dable gets some credit. But I probably the biggest reason is Stefan Diggs. Uh, becoming the play, well, he was already a great player, to, but the, but to take it another level and to give Allen that that additional option downfield has taken Allen to a completely different place, but uh, frankly, a place I never thought he'd get to. Yeah, I mean, I love Allen. I didn't think this was possible this year, even, and uh, like it really kind of comes down to his ability to throw the ball downfield finally, and uh, and that all kind of came together this year. But yeah, it's gonna be fun to see to watch them next weekend. And like, I know the Texan season's over, but football's not over, and. Um, there's a lot of stuff to mix out right about the Texans that we'll have to wait for like, you know, four or five more weeks, you know? Um, so one of the things that I thought was also interesting about this, like one score record, um, thing that occurred this year in the flip is like, it seemed that it was possible this was going to happen, but also during Bill O'Brien's time in Houston, he always talked about how it's so difficult to win games, in the national football league. Um, no matter if they were playing like a bad AFC South team, he always made sure to make this a point whenever they you would barely beat like a, a Colts team coached by or quarterback by Matt Hasselbeck, for example. Mm-hmm. And even though these games are usually one score games and coin tosses, like he always said about the importance of playing games close and winning games at the end. And so like with this season, like you kind of saw all that kind of um, fall into shambles form with the loss against Pittsburgh, loss against Minnesota that were you know, one score games in those situations. And then like last year with Watson, he threw a touchdown pass with his eyes dangling out of his socket. This year, you know, you have Nick Martin's getting the snap to him where he didn't get the chance to, you know, throw a touchdown pass with his eye hanging out. And so, like, was there any other way that Bill O'Brien era would come to a close? Like, it did seem like it was going to take, like, a tremendous swing in fortune, and it seemed like that's exactly what happened this year to him. It, it is, and I think on some level, the fact that the schedule started out so brutal and that they looked so terrible, I think, it, it you know, probably went a long way to it. I mean, if, if you figure that, if those first four games are spread out over the course of the season instead of occurring in the first month, I'm not sure that O'Brien doesn't make it through the end of the year. Mm-hmm. They just looked so bad and so uh, overmatched that I think that even to Cal McNair, the choice was clear. I think on some on some level, um, I think you can probably look at what happened the first four games as a blessing in terms of the long-term health of the franchise because, I mean, we all know, I think we've all been, been watching them long enough that if this team had somehow managed to string a couple more wins together and at least look strong at the end of the year with the suspensions and the and some of the injuries that they suffered, I would have been terrified that Cal McNair might have said, ah, it was just a bad beat. Let's run it back one more time and see what happens. Whereas I think, that unfortunately, sort of the brutal decapitation of the season at the beginning may have been better in terms of the long-term health of the franchise when it comes to getting O'Brien out of the building. Yeah, and thank God for the schedule makers for doing that too, because that was my concern as well after the Minnesota game. It's like, well, now the schedule is easy, and they could definitely yep. like win three in a row, and all of a sudden they're like talking themselves into being a playoff team, and you know, saying that, oh, well, we did this, you know, three years ago, we can do this again, and even though it's zero and three, we can do zero and four. We can we know what this feels like, and uh, you know, praise be to the football gods above that 
it kind of worked its way out like this. And Cal McNair had the audacity to fire him, which was kind of spurned by Jack Easterby from that report too, in some kind of weird way. So I don't know exactly what exactly occurred there, but uh, however it happened, I'm glad that it happened the way it did. I'm with you. I'm still, I mean, truly, I am still stunned that they lost as many games as they did. I mean, the defense was horrendous, but Deshaun played at a level that very few quarterbacks ever reach. And to then have a, to have four wins to show for it is really, really staggering. I I saw a stat uh, on Twitter and I I don't want to, I don't want to not give credit to whoever it was that posted it, but it was something effective. The number of 300 yard uh, multiple touchdown games that Deshaun had this year, it's, it's almost always a, a, clear omen that it's a good playoff team that they can will them to victory. So for him to go four and 12 with that kind of production this year, I still think it's, it's amazing. And it's truly a testament to how poorly the roster was constructed, uh, especially on the defensive side of the ball, that the team was so bad in so many other areas that it was able to overtake what was truly, I mean, Deshaun Watson has no chance of getting any MVT MVP traction Four win quarterbacks. Don't get that. But he was, a very, he was very clearly a top-five quarterback this year. He had an absolutely astounding season that I think if you'd asked any Texans fan at the beginning of the year, you know, this is what Deshaun's going to do at the, at, at the end of the season. What do you think the team's record is? No one's saying 4-12, and 12, ever. And so for them to, to somehow be so wretched that they're able to erase a really, really phenomenal season from a quarterback like that, it, I mean, it's really something we may never see it again. Yeah, and I I've ex- I hit this point earlier in the year too, where like week nine or week ten, where I was looking at the numbers, and it's like, are all the numbers have Watson as like the fourth best quarterback? Because so the offense is still kind of bad, though, so I wasn't really fully buying it. But after like what's occurred the last six weeks, I'm like, yeah, he's a one of the five best quarterbacks in the league, and it really is a testament to how badly Bill Bryan botched this thing as a general manager to be able to turn that season into a four and twelve team um, to the extent that it was. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, again, I don't know that we'll ever see anything like it. I, I've always been of the mind that if you have a true franchise quarterback, that your floor is probably six wins, maybe seven. And I know that the schedule was, was tough, especially at the beginning of this year. But to imagine that Deshaun played at the level that he played, that he stayed healthy all year, and that they still only posted four wins. I mean, never in a million years would I have thought that have been possible. <laughs> like even the Texans were really bad. It was hard for them to only win four games sometimes. Yeah, I, it just hasn't happened that often. I mean, and and when you think about, it, and some of it's of course just sort of the reversion of the mean in terms of the one score games. And I know you've written a lot about that. They've been so incredibly lucky every year up until now, or more recently, I should say, up until now, for it to all even out in this way. I mean, and you look at the way they lost all season. You could watch football for the rest of your life and not ever see a season, see one team lose games the way they did. Oh, I mean, fumbles, fumbles in the end zone, kicks bouncing through. I mean, it's staggering to imagine how they lost so many games that were one possession scores that they very easily, you know, they're not going to win all of them. They're not going to win most of them. You know, last year was an anomaly. But even if they just win half of them. All of a sudden, instead of a four-win team, they're what? They're a they're a seven-win team, maybe an eight-win team. Yeah, exactly. And and that was kind of like the thing about this year, mere last year, is they didn't give Watson a chance to win these close games, you know. Or it's like cutie fumbles in the end zone. Watson doesn't even get a chance to like third down to you know, make a play or whatever in those situations. 
um, as well. And like that was kind of what happened last year, though. And one of the things I didn't understand whenever I first learned about the one-score record, I was like, well, how can a team use this? Is this just inevitable that they're going to be bad the following year? But it's like, no, like you know that your performance was overrated this year. And so we have to get a lot better this offseason to be able to get past that, to stay at the same win level we had this year. And the Texans never understood that, I don't think, ever, uh, whenever Bill O'Brien was here. And so like, they got actually worse this offseason. This was the result. And I know whenever I talked to Rivers when we did the season preview, one of the things that we said, we talked about, is like it was more likely for Houston to fall apart and be 4-12 and 12 and 6-10 and 10 than for Houston to be like 12-4 and four and become a Super Bowl contender this year. And uh, that's kind of like exactly what we had happen. It was like this extreme that was more likely end up occurring. But like more often than not, like Texans would be like a six and ten or seven nine team instead of being four and twelve and have what would have been the number third overall pick in the NFL draft. Right. No, that's that's right. I mean, you can you could look at the at the roster composition at the beginning of the year, and I don't think I mean, I, and and again, what do I know? I think I had them going ten and six at the beginning of the year based purely or almost entirely on Deshaun's magic, but. It's, it was easy and I think reasonable at the, to look at the schedule and say at the beginning of this year, you know, they, they, they could win six games, seven games. It was, I think you could, you could squint and maybe say nine or 10. I don't think really anybody had them at 12 or 13 or anything like that. But similarly, I don't think there were very many people that had them at four. It's just really unheard of to have a quarterback as talented as Deshaun Watson and to still somehow manage to lose that many games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I went back and read my season preview last week, and I was like, I like it was like 95% it was like why the Texans are bad and dumb. And then it's like the last two paragraphs, like, well, Watson's beautiful and incredible, and he should be able to will them to like nine wins, even as bad as the roster is. And they, the team just didn't give him the chance to win these close games that he won the year before. Um, but yeah, like I picked them to be the third wild card team, and they're 4-12 and 12 and nowhere close to that, you know? It's it's nuts, man. And 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 again, I know that you know people can somehow harp on on fans being too negative or or too too Pollyannish, too sunshiny. But I don't think even the most negative fan would have looked at this team and said this team wins four games if Deshaun plays all sixteen. I mean, I, it's really really amazing to me that he was able to be as productive and healthy as he was. And we're still talking about a team that, if not for that trade for Laramie Tunsil, is picking third in the NFL draft. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like even BFD, like I think he picks to make the, po- the postseason. He's probably the most negative person that we have on the yeah, most, he's and- most negative person in the world. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah. And even he, uh, he did that too. Like I, I still am surprised. And like one of the reasons why I picked Houston to make the postseason, cause I was like, well, I didn't the year before. I was like, is my brain just warped? Like, am I just disgusting from watching, you know, name redacted and Brandon Whedon and TJ Yates and Brian Hoyer or like I don't understand the impact that franchise quarterback has on a team. And so that's why I ended up picking him to make the playoffs. But there's only so much that a quarterback can do whenever the rest of the roster is as bad as it is. It is. And and, and it really, I mean, it just underscores for the defense to be so terrible and to be so devoid of talent, for it to be at that level to completely diminish what Deshaun Watson was able to do with by the end of the season, he's throwing to Chad Hansen, Kiki QT, guys that no one ever thought was actually going to be in the rotation at, at wide receiver. And he's still somehow, you know, thrown for three or four touchdowns a game, rarely turning it over. I mean, I, it, it's 
it's one of those seasons that I don't know that we'll ever see again. I think that's probably a good thing, but maybe maybe at one point when this franchise isn't such a dumpster fire, <laughs> we'll look back on it with a little bit a little bit more amazement. Yeah, and I like I like this year just because of the fact that like I think it was a sacrifice that needed to occur for Houston to get back to the next point they want to be at because uh, like we knew what Houston was at Bill Bryan and it was you know, very mediocre, and so I think it was like a bad thing that needed to occur um, for us to move on in the future. So where do you want to guess Houston finished in defensive DVOA this year? It's got to be 31st, right? Yeah, it's 30th. And I was hoping that after okay. this Tennessee game, they would finish 32nd. But Jacksonville and Detroit were somehow worse than this defense. That's, that's, that's really sad. <laughs> that's, that's, that is real. And, and I think the worst part about it is you look at this team and, and some of the contracts that have been given out mm-hmm. to guys that are, that are on the top, like, I know we beat up on him all the time, and and I think he's, by all accounts, people that have met him and people that have spent time with him, and certainly publicly, Whitney Merciless, I think, is probably an incredible human being. But when he got that contract last year, everybody knew it was a problem. And I don't even know that the most negative people would have foreseen him being even worse than they imagined this year. The guy, and he's, I think, he's guaranteed ten and a half or eleven million next year. Yeah, they lose and then, money you know, if they got, cut him next year. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, you've got Bradley Roby, who who I think you would say was an above average starting corner, maybe even a good one. But he missed he missed five games. He's got one more coming next year. Mm-hmm. Then that's Eric Murray. I mean, these these names that they gave big money to that just somehow managed to disappoint, uh, I think, beyond any reasonable expectation. That's that's probably the most, it's, it's not like they were playing a bunch of sixth and seventh rounders out there. They were paying veterans real money. And this defense was still that bad. Yeah, like this is Bill O'Brien's magnum opus too, because this was Deshaun Watson's fourth year on the rookie contract. Uh, this is what this is like your best chance that the Texans have had to win the Super Bowl since 2011. This is probably an even better chance they had even then. Um, too, and like they completely blew it in in every way possible from what they did the last two off seasons. Oh, so all this is sad and bad, and we'll say more sad and bad things. But um, <laughs> are there any other positives that you have? from the 2020 season aside from Bill O'Brien was fired and Deshaun Watson's a top five quarterback. I think you could probably, it kind of, kind of in the Deshaun Watson vein, I don't ever want to excuse the trade, the trade of DeAndre Hopkins because it was completely inexcusable. But I think going back to Deshaun Watson and, and showing how he was able to have his best season with truly a rotating cast of characters at wide receiver beyond Will Fuller uh, and Brandon Cooks, um, you know, if we're looking for a positive, I think Brandon Cooks had a very, very good year. Uh, is he is he is he better than DeAndre Hopkins? No. Is he worth what they what they traded to get him? Probably not, especially not when you consider that it was done as a reaction to losing Hopkins in the first place, which was an unforced error. But I think Brandon Cooks had a very, very solid year. Uh, I don't I don't believe he has any guaranteed money left on his deal. Mm -hmm. If there was a way that they could make the numbers a little more palatable for the coming seasons, maybe guarantee something, especially if you're talking about letting Will Fuller walk. I think Brandon Cooks was a bright spot. Um, And then really, man, you know, we may well be done at that point. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that we expected to be better, Justin Reed didn't play well. Um, you know, Zach Cunningham had a lot of tackles, but I don't know that you would say that he had a great season. Um, Tyrell Adams, I guess, was a nice surprise when McKinney went down. But the number of really positive stories beyond the, the you know, brilliance of Deshaun Watson, it's pretty short. 
Yeah, it's funny. I put down here uh, showcasing that tackling numbers don't matter because Zach Cunningham led the NFL in tackles this year. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, all of his tackles were like for four yards, five yards, this sort of thing. Um, some other positives I have, though, is Tyus Howard's pass sets. Like, he was a good pass protector this year. Um, yeah. And, like, he's hard to get around. Like, his hands were good. And, like, he was able to time his punch better. Wasn't, like, consistently turning, which was very welcome to see. Can't run block at all, but he's a very good pass protector. Um, Tim Kelly actually was the guy who orchestrated and coordinated the best pass offense that was seen during the Bill O'Brien era. And I think, like, he was definitely, um, he was the best coach the Texans had this year, which is a bizarre thing to say. But, like, the Houston's passing offense wasn't a problem. It was their run offense and the injuries they had and those sort of things. And the suspension, of course, to a fuller. I think J.J. played well in the middle of the year. I think he was kind of bad in the beginning. And uh, he kind of picks up the middle of the year. It's kind of, like, fun to have, like, you know, three or four really good J.J. games still. And then right. also, like, Will Fuller proved that he's really good. Like, I know he was suspended and everything else, but... Like he like really solidified himself as just being like a really great wide receiver and somebody who I don't think he's a number one wide receiver in the sense that he can't carry an entire passing offense, but he's like definitely like you know one of the he's like one of the most efficient wide receivers in the league and is a legitimate deep threat and can create so many things for the rest of the offense and I don't I can't imagine a world where like you don't have Will Fuller on this team next year too. Well, you got to think that they franchise him. Mm -hmm. um, I would still be, I would still be relatively scared about giving him gigantic money as a wideout. I think someone on the market, if he hit the market, would do it in a second. But you having the franchise tag, the ability to tag him, I think that's without a doubt the smart move to make for him. And then again, you know, if if you're coming back next year and your starting wide receivers are Will Fuller and Brandon Cooks. You could do a lot worse than that. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I think if those are your two starting wide receivers, you still need to address the position, uh, I think. But, you know, if you came back with Kiki QT, uh, I don't think Randall Cobb's going anywhere for at least another year because of the way his contract's structured. But you could look at those. If those are your top four wide receivers, uh, you know, there are going to be there are going to be a substantial amount of NFL teams that have a much worse wide receiving room. Yeah, that's great. Those, that's a great those guys. Yeah, that's a really great point. And like my thing with Cooks is that I think Cooks like he's a different player than what he was two years ago with Los Angeles. And I just don't want him, and like a lot of his a lot of the routes he won were like deep crossing routes that take a while to open up, where he's just like running horizontally, you know, twenty five yards in the field, where he's able to get open like that, but he's not winning those like vertical routes all anymore just because he doesn't have the same speed he used to have. And so like I would like to see Cooks here for like eight million dollars next year. I just have a hard hard time like here's twelve million dollars even though your skill set's not the same anymore. And we probably replicate the skill set fairly easily. And then we also really can't trust you in the middle of the field. And uh, because of your concussion issues, the fact that you're five foot seven, it's hard through your crossing routes. And so for like those reasons there, and the fact that he's already 27, his speed's already kind of diminished some, uh, I just wouldn't want to pay him $12 million, but I, I would definitely try and negotiate him down to like, you know, eight and give him some bonus money spread out over like two or three years or something like that as well. Yeah, if you can, if you can figure out a way to get him some guaranteed money to make him feel like he's got... Uh, some sort of sense of security beyond a year-to-year -year deal. I think that's the way to go. If you could get him down to $8 million and maybe guarantee some portion of it for uh, the, the 2022 or something like that, I'd be perfectly fine with that. I don't know that anybody on them – I don't know that he gets $12 million a year on the market right now. I mean, maybe he does. Who knows? Uh, based on how this next year goes. There's so much – I think there's so much volatility because no one knows exactly how the salary cap is going to be handled. I think they have an idea what the number is going to be, but there may be some different forces at play with COVID and everything. If you can if you can keep him here – and he said he wants to be here mm -hmm. with Deshaun. If you can figure out a smart way to keep him here, um, I think it makes all the sense in the world to bring him back, franchise Fuller, 
I think you have QT under contract maybe for one more year on his rookie deal. Uh, if there's a way that you can, you know, get some depth, uh, you know, a veteran depth or something without breaking the bank, I'd be all for it. I think, though, you have a chance to have a pretty decent wide receiving core. Now, of course, I, I think tight end, tight end is probably fine enough. I can't see a way that you would bring back Darren Fells um, based on based on his contract and, and what he produced by certainly by the end of the year. The big thing, I think, offensively is figuring out how you're going to buttress the interior of the line. Zach Fulton has to go. Um, you know, Nick Martin, I think if, if we're being kind, we'd say he's average or mediocre. And then your other guard spot, you know, I still really I really would love to be a fly on the wall and, and try to get a better sense of what really happened to Max Sharping, mm -hmm. because after his rookie year, he was a guy I think that we all had a lot of hope for. I don't think Mike Devlin or the Texans staff did him any favors this year, but I also don't think he played particularly well. So I think that, you know, the, the, the guards addressing the guards, if we're talking about what to really focus on when it comes to the offense, aside from running back, which I think is probably a pretty uh, a way that should have a lot of easier ways to get better that don't involve David Johnson or Duke Johnson, unfortunately. I think the big thing is what you can do to address those two guard spots and to a lesser degree center purely because the, the extension Nick Martin got probably make ties him to the team for at least another year. Yeah, I think so too. And on the interior, like I think I'm sharping, like he was unplayable though, you know, like he just didn't get strong enough to play that position. Like he's just like watching him pull and hit linebackers. They don't move at all whatsoever. And then also like, I mean, he's unplayable. Like he didn't know who to block a lot of times. Like he did not pick up stunts. He didn't know which linebacker he was supposed to block. Um, he would take like a, a wrong step and then somebody would come back in the backfield immediately, make a tackle for a loss. And like, you just can't play a guy like that. And it's weird too, because he's in the same offense as his second year. And I just don't think he lifted any weights at all last year. And like, okay. he didn't get strong enough, um, like playing simple. And then about all the mental mistakes though, just didn't make any sense to me um, watching him play this year. Like how much different is the terminology between, you know, Tim Kelly and Bill O'Brien. I really couldn't imagine it was all that different too. It, it can't be any different. And I mean, am, am I wrong or did, or, or did you think that he had a very solid and very promising rookie year? Yeah, he was a, I mean, he was a tremendous pass blocker at the guard position and like in the run game, like individual blocks, he was, he wasn't all that great pulling. He wasn't all that great, but like he would, he had, he orchestrated some good uh, double teams, Larry Tunsil, and that was probably like the strong point of the run game last year was their deuce blocks together. Um, but yeah, I didn't think this was like a possibility for him to be this bad this year, and especially after having like one year at guard last year as well too. Yeah, I mean it's it's just really surprising. He might be, you know, when we go back and really take stock of it, if if we're talking about offensively, he may well have been the biggest disappointment on offense, only because I don't think really anyone expected much out of David Johnson. Um, and, and Duke Johnson, whether it was a question of him not necessarily taking advantage of the few opportunities he got when David was out or whether it's just, you know, them them not putting him in a position to succeed and really taking advantage of his receiving abilities. I, I don't think the, the running backs really as as much as as they were sort of wanting this year. I think that probably if I had to pick a guy that disappointed the most offensively, I, I may well say Max Sharping because I really had high expectations for him after last year. Yeah, it'd be Max Sharping for me too. Cause like, and also watching last year, it seemed like there's an easy path for him to be a good guard in the NFL. And mm -hmm. it's like, just gain 15 pounds, get strong. And like, you should be able to do that because that's your job. And like, I don't know, I maybe um, Jack Easterby's conditioning program wasn't <laughs> suited enough for Max Sharping. And, you know, he didn't give enough protein powder or whatever it was. Uh, but, or I, I also joke around that Nick Martin took all the weights from the weight room. And so Max <laughs> Sharp didn't even get the chance to get strong enough because of that. But for whatever reason, it was a, a completely lost year for him. 
There's a few other young players, though, I think we didn't learn anything new about at all this year, which is kind of like one of the frustrating things about what's going to be the next like Texans team next year is that like it's not that they it's not only that they didn't have draft picks and like they lost high draft picks. They've only drafted in the first round once since 2018, but it's also they have young players that just didn't develop this year. and We don't know a whole lot about. Um, so did you learn anything new about Justin Reed, Charles Omenehu, Lion Johnson Jr., or Jacob Martin this year? Uh, out of all those names you listed, I, you know, did we learn anything new about him? I think probably the one that was most promising was Omenahu. I think you can look at him and think that, you know, if he's played right, he can be a true rotational piece on a defensive line. I think everybody else. I mean, I, I just and I, I've said most disappointing offensively was was Max Sharping. I think Justin Reed may have been the biggest disappointment defensively, and maybe it's because I had such unreasonable expectations for him. But I thought he was he looked last year like he was a legitimate top eight safety, maybe in the NFL, mm-hmm. uh, top ten for sure. And this year, it just I, I he seemed like, and it may well have been the shoulder issue that was that he had surgery on in the off season. He never really got it right because there was a ton of just sort of shoulder tackling, missed tackling. He missed it. He, he just seemed to sort of miss assignments. Not, you know, he really, really was disappointing this year compared to what I expected. I, I think Lonnie Johnson, I mean, whether you want to play him at corner or whether you want to play him at safety, I, I don't know that it really matters. I don't think that we've seen anything in two years to make you think that he's a solution um, at any, at any point in terms of a defensive back in terms of the defensive backfield. Jacob Martin, you know, Jacob Martin, I think kind of is what he is at this point. I don't think he's a bad player. I think he's somebody that can produce in a rotational spot. But, you know, there's no reason to think that he's somehow going to become a a, a demon at outside linebacker. (laughs) And he's not big enough to play anywhere with his hand in the dirt. So out of those, you know, out of those four, I'd say Omenahu was the one that probably fared the best and, and gives the most reason for promise next year. Yeah, I think Omenahu had the best season out of them. Uh, like him, I think it's kind of same thing as last year. Like he's a really good interior pass rusher. You don't want him rushing against like as like an outside shake and offensive tackles. And he still has problems in the run game. You know, like just like reacting to things and uh, taking on double teams, that sort of thing. And like Cornell had that quote today when he was asked about him. He's like, "Well, he got better in the year once he figured out he was playing on the interior." It's like he played on the interior last year. Like I, I have no idea yeah. at all what you're talking about. You know, Romeo has said some things in the past few weeks that. Like, I, I almost am thinking that it's a, a situation where he's just, he knows he's on the way out, so he just kind of wants to say things to either protect certain people yeah. or to dismiss certain concerns because, you know, I mean, what he said yesterday about A.J. Moore uh, essentially not misplaying that that play at the end of the game, I, I don't know how anybody that's watched football for any amount of time would think that A.J. Moore did what he was supposed to do. And, and Romeo's had some remarks like that over the last few weeks. His... He and the staff's unwillingness to play the young guys once the season was clearly lost was really, really frustrating because I, I don't think I don't know that any of us harbor any illusions about Charlie Heck being a, a starting caliber tackle in the NFL or even maybe Jonathan Greenard being a, a, a anything more than a rotational linebacker. But when the season is lost and you've got guys in front of them who are just not producing, there's really no excuse to not get some of those guys reps to give them and frankly the next coaching staff more tape on what they've got going coming in 2021 yeah i mean it was absolutely crazy that you know like even greener not playing over merciless or even like martin like rushing on the exterior like i've watched martin like fake rush against the guard and then drop into hook zone 
way too yeah. many times this year. You know, I think he had, he did that more often than like rush against offensive tackle, like a one versus one situation. And um, like that's where stuff just doesn't make you know, very much sense to me. Um, I think of all these guys though, the one thing I think that drove me the craziest was Lion Johnson Jr. Just like him <laughs> moving a deep middle safety and just staying there, with his hands in his pocket, not knowing what to do. And they also played so a ton of cover three in the middle part of the year. Yeah. They kind of stopped after the Green Bay game because you have Philip Gaines and like they had nobody who could carry the seam. They had no, the linebackers didn't know how to play that um, pass right. coverage. But it's like if Lonnie Johnson Jr. had any hope of playing cornerback, it's in a cover three defense where he can be like, you know, play that Richard Sherman sort of role, just in the sense of, yeah, you zone turn and use your physicality, you squeeze guys to the sideline, and guys stuff came like that. And the fact that they didn't even play him at cornerback in that coverage scheme just make, gives me zero hope at all for Lion Johnson being able to play any sort of cornerback. But I still really want to see it. And so maybe right. the next uh, defense coordinator will actually try that out. Uh, but like, he got better at tackling this year, though. That's a nice thing I can say yeah, about Lonnie. He did. He became a better tackler. Yeah, you're right. He did. It, it, still, it still wasn't great, but he certainly was better. I don't think the Texans have done him any favors since he's been in Houston in terms of how they've utilized him. Is he a corner? Is he a safety? I don't think they've done him any favors at all. Uh, but I do think that he also has not, he hasn't shown much either in the, in the snaps he has had. So it's going to be huge for him. Who's the next defensive coordinator? What kind of scheme are they running? And is there going to be a place for him? Mm -hmm. Because for the, I mean, the first two years he played very little last year. And when he played this year, I don't think he showed you anything to make you think that he's someone you can, you can, or should rely on in seasons to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like, he was a project pick from the very beginning when he was selected, right. like he didn't know how to play cornerback in Kentucky and uh, right. like he was an athlete. And so you have to teach him how to play football and they fail to teach him how to play football. And like, I've heard things, you know, from people I've talked to where it's like they're, they thought there's a level, lack of like high level coaching at, for the Texans, like during the Bill O'Brien era, I think Lion Johnson Jr. is a really good example of that. I think the offensive line is a good example of that too. Where like where the talent's not so tremendous that you can just get by on that alone, you end up with players who are just kind of stuck and you never really get anything at all out of them. Yeah, and 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 to make it worse, you know, because of the way you've assembled the roster, you're relying on guys that have no business on the on the on an NFL field to be starters or contributors. I mean, Vernon Hargraves and <laughs> Philip Gaines should not be playing snaps on an NFL team. They've, they've, if, I mean, if Vernon Hargraves was the king of it when it, when his man wasn't making the catch, if it was just a bad throw, or it, I think he had one yesterday where it just kind of bounced off his helmet at one point, And he's celebrating as though, as though he somehow knocked away a game winning pass <laughs> early in the first quarter. I mean, it's just Hargraves gains those kind of guys. You're relying on them to be starters, I mean, Gaines was never supposed to be a starter, but the Texans went into the season thinking that Vernon Hargraves was going to be no worse than their than their nickel corner. And he it's I don't understand how you could watch him play and think that that's in any way a sound move. Yeah, I think he started every game this year, too. And we had a question from at Confused Lefty, and he asked, how has Hargraves managed to steal living in the NFL? And the only answer to that is Bill O'Brien, of course. Well, and, and I mean, he, I remember him coming out of Florida like he was he was very highly regarded. I think he went seventh overall. Um, I think mm -hmm. the Bucks took him seventh overall. He had a lot of he had a lot of uh, hype coming into the league. And then for them to cut him, for them to waive him with with, uh, I think, a year left on his rookie deal um, or maybe his third or fourth year. And then Texans get him and the Texans, you know, last year with him and Conley to it. Uh, they traded for Conley. But, you know, they were they were gambling on traits and talent. And then to see it, I mean, 
I can't fathom that there will be an NFL team that will pay Vernon Hargraves to play football next year. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't understand how you could watch him and think that he should be playing in the NFL. And he's five foot ten too. That was kind of one of the things I learned about uh, like Greedy Williams. Like he's been hurt his entire time in Cleveland, and I haven't had a chance to watch him play at all. But I really liked him at LSU. And it's like yeah. size is important, you know, in the NFL. And I think Hargraves is a good example of that. I think Grease is a good example of that. Like, it doesn't matter how quick you are and, like, how good of a coverage guy you are. Like, you have to be strong enough to play that position. And, and it's like, at least be tall enough and have, like, arm length enough to be able to get, uh, you know, bad balls away and stuff. And I think Hargraves is a good example of, like, how important size is at the quarterback position that often is kind of like overlooked there. And it, and it wasn't even, I don't think, necessarily size. I mean, I think speed-wise, he wasn't nearly as fast or quick as, as we probably thought he was, or has, or frankly, how maybe fast or quick the Bucks thought he was when they drafted him as, as a top-ten pick. I mean, again, there was an NFL team that decided Vernon Hargraves third should be taken in the top ten. Mm-hmm. And now he's, now he's a guy that I can't fathom that he's not on his way out of the league based on what he's shown in Tampa, and then certainly when he got the lion's share of the snaps this year in Houston, and last year when he played. I mean, it's it's, and those are the guys that Bill O'Brien and the staff and Jack Easterby and and whoever thought that those were suitable replacements, suitable defensive solutions for this team in 2020. I, I don't understand how you can have a job in the NFL if you thought that Vernon Hargraves was a starting corner. Yeah, it's crazy. And like he played slot and like that made more sense last year. Him playing outside was, yeah. I mean, I just felt bad for him at times last year though. Like watching like try to like cover T.Y. Hilton even who, you know, had bad, sure. had entire, like his entire 2020 season was bad. And they played Houston's like, oh, I'm T.Y. Hilton again now. Yep. Yep. And, and look, I mean, those guys, they're going to have bad games. They're going to get burned. There's going to be bad plays, but I mean, I think the number of good plays that Vernon Hargraves made, you can probably count on one hand and you might not need all five fingers for the, (laughs) for the 2020 season. I mean, it's just, as you said, at some point, if it wasn't so frustrating and if, if it didn't so frequently lead to big plays, you, you would feel bad for him, but instead we're watching it going, how could the, how could the people in charge have thought that this guy should be playing significant snaps for an NFL team, much less a team that Bill O'Brien repeatedly said was a playoff team. Even when he got fired, he said that they were a playoff team. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's it's just sort of indicative of the problems that the defense had and that that the roster management and assembly had. Yeah. Well, so the defense, like we mentioned earlier, they finished thirtieth in defensive DVOA, and they brought in your know, new defensive coordinator Anthony Weaver to run the defense this year. Like, what do you think about the job that he did this year? Are you surprised by where the defense ended up? It's, it's really sort of a chicken or the egg thing. I know at the beginning of the season, I, I really more than anything else kind of felt bad for him because I thought that there was such a lack of talent that, you know, how can you make how can you make chicken salad out of this? But as the season went on, you would see some things game to game where you would say, man, I know that these guys aren't good, but scheme wise, strategy wise, what is he doing? He's not helping it. And he's, sometimes he's actively making it worse. You mentioned Jacob Martin falling into zone. Um, you know, some of the lack of blitzing, some of the, they just never, it never got seemed to get exotic at all. They never seemed to address the fact it, it sort of seemed to me like they never admitted that there was a complete lack of talent. So they needed to try something different. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was, we're going to do what we do, despite the fact that our players can't do it. This is our scheme. This is how we're going to play. And whether that was Weaver, whether that was Cornell, I don't know, but I guess to answer your question, I felt at the beginning of the season, I thought it was much more of a talent issue. At the end of the season, I think that it's still a substantial talent issue, but I don't know how you can look at the team's performance and think that Anthony Weaver did anything 
to alleviate the problems this team had talent wise on defense. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I, I mean, the first and foremost, like it's a talent issue, but he just did so many just things this year that made like zero sense. And like, I think every podcast I'd be like, okay, here's seven things he did today that were like, I have no idea what this is, like why you would do it. And like, it does seem like there's certain defense coordinators who have this problem where they try to be too exotic and too creative just for the sake of it, but without having any sort of like, you know, idea of like where you're trying to funnel the ball or how you're trying to create pressure or like where the gap is going to be or what, what matchup you're trying to exploit at all. And uh, I mean, like it was just a mess from the very beginning, like JJ Watt playing nose tackle and standing up and just like chasing guys outside the tackles. Like that was their big game plan they came up with for week one. And, uh, and it just got worse from there. It, it really did. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting thing in that I think Tim Kelly, after O'Brien was fired, I think acquitted himself well enough that it wouldn't surprise me if in another few years he was an offensive coordinator again somewhere. I don't think he's going to be an offensive coordinator necessarily at the NFL level this next year. Maybe he will. I don't think it'll be in Houston regardless, but but maybe maybe he gets an offensive coordinator job somewhere else. I think there's enough you could look at the last 12 games of the year and say, ah, maybe. Uh, but, you know, Anthony Weaver, I don't know that there's anything that he that he showed or that the Texans showed this year that would make you confident that he's just going to bounce back to another defensive coordinator job that quickly. It doesn't mean that he won't get one again. It doesn't mean that he's not still on a trajectory to be a head coach one day. But his one year in Houston calling the defense, if in fact it was him, and I assume it was and not Cornell, if in fact it was Weaver doing the heavy lifting, I don't know that there's really anything you can look at this year that's promising and say that's a guy that should be calling an NFL scheme again anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really buy that theory at all either that Cornell was calling the defense. It's like they didn't do anything Cornell had really done previous years <clears throat> defensively. It wasn't they played a lot of quarters and a lot of off man and either rush three or rush five or six. Like they rushed four and they did some like interior blitzes and stuff, but it didn't really seem like a Cornell defense at all. Um, and I think the most important thing about this Weaver thing that occurred this year and like, you know, for everybody, you know, listening about thinking about who the next Texans head coach is going to be is the Texans are probably going to hire guys that have been head coach before, probably. Um, they won the top offensive or defensive coaches out there. And like, we know what they did at their previous job and the type of offenses and defense they ran when they got all those players. But really until like they have the job that they get, we don't really have an idea at all. Like if they're good at that position or not. I think we was really a great example. He said all the right things. Like everybody's very excited about him taking on that job. Um, you know, he's a former player, everybody, all the coaches have really great things to say about him. And now he becomes a defensive coordinator for the first time. And none of it came to fruition. He actively hurt the defense throughout the season too. So it's just something to keep in mind whenever like if Matt Eberflus gets hired or if Arthur Smith gets hired or Brian Dable, even if the gets hired, like you have no idea what he's going to be like as a head coach. You only know him as the offensive coordinator. That's right. And, and then you look at, you know, sort of the other, the other side of that spectrum is look at Mike Vrabel, yeah. um, who his, his one year here, he was killed by injuries, but it was not a good defense. I think there was a, there wasn't a lot to look at that first year uh, when he was calling the plays here, where you would say, "Boy, this this guy's going to be a going to be a stud one day." I think it, you know, and and I'm not necessarily putting him in the top echelon of NFL coaches, but it's clear he's had significant success in Tennessee, and I think that you can make the argument that he's been a vastly superior head coach to what he was as a coordinator. He has been. He's been the defense coordinator this year in the Titans have bomb five defense uh, right. since he took over after Dean Pease last year. Like I know things didn't work out for them. They had some uh, talent issues and stuff too, but he hasn't done a very good job coordinating that defense. But yeah, like, he's a great CEO, but not like a great defensive coordinator. And there's two different jobs. And so I don't know it's weird because like there's certain guys that you may want, 
But again, like you have, you're not interviewing them. You don't know what these people are like. You have no idea what they'd actually do with the head coach role. And like Bill O'Brien was a great candidate, you know, in 2014. We saw what happened after that too. Right. Yeah. No. And, and, I mean, you know, in in the intro, I mean, O'Brien was absolutely who I wanted back in 2014. He, you know, been a head coach at Penn State for a couple of years, had more success than I think people expected. That was back when people thought Christian Hackenberg was going to be an NFL star. Um, you know, and then the you good factor old days. in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was back in the day when you know he he he'd been um, the offense coordinator in New England, and and there the. There was more bloom on the Belichick coaching tree rose than there certainly is, you know, seven years later. But that was the guy that I think checked all the boxes back then. And I think we could probably it's probably a subject for a different podcast. I don't even necessarily think that you can say that O'Brien was a terrible coach. I think record wise, he won enough games. He's going to get another head coaching job in the NFL if he wants it at some point, I think, based on his record. Mm -hmm. Things here didn't really totally go south until he started dabbling in management. I think you can look at him and say that, you know, he's he's the kind of guy that you you take the risk on and you feel good about it uh, when you're hiring a coach based on limited sample size. And obviously it didn't work out, but he's he's done more as a head coach than a lot of the guys that people are, are associating as, as leading candidates for the Texans job this time around. Yeah, for sure. I, I think O'Brien's like a very mediocre head coach, an yeah. awful drum manager, a mediocre head coach. And like, I think he'd be a good head coach for like, I mean, I wouldn't wish him on anybody after our experience with him, but I think like right. a franchise that's in shambles, like the Jets, for example, like just bring some sort of like consistency where he's gonna get the bare minimum out of the talent that you have, like it, and bring some sort of stability there. I think it would be a good fit for like three years or so. But then you get out before, uh, you know, his tentacles like take over the whole organization at that point. Right now, now there's talk about him potentially being a candidate to be the offensive coordinator under Nick Saban in Alabama. It is. And, and, you know, maybe that's a place that he goes and has success. They they have they have more talent than anybody else. All he's got to worry about is calling plays or scheming an offense. It's an easy way to rehab his image. And, you know, two, three years, all of a sudden, maybe not even that long. Maybe he's a viable head coaching candidate, either in college or the NFL again. Yeah, I I think it's too perfect. And I'll be sick next year if uh, like I actually watch the national championship, which I usually don't do. And see Bill O'Brien like you know kissing the crystal ball or whatever it is. Oh you know? God, uh, I, I won't I won't handle that well. <laughs> and then he goes, he becomes the head coach at like I don't know Michigan or whatever after that, you know. Or he succeeds Nick Saban at Alabama. Even better, even better. Yep, even better. Um, so the offensive line, they have thirty. They had thirty-two million dollars in cap space invested into it this year. They had two first-round picks and two second-round picks invested into it. Um, Watson was sacked forty-nine times, which was. Top, which was the second most behind only Carson Wentz, who has sacked 50 times. The Texans have the worst run offense in football this year by DVOA. Don't ask Rich Gann that, though. Or don't tell him that. He thinks that you know David Johnson still needs more carries, uh, even though the season's uh, still over. Um, do you think the Texans are just an offensive line coach away from finally having a good offensive line? Or like you alluded to earlier, do they really need to add some talent in the interior to make this happen? I think it's probably a little bit of both, just because I don't know how you can look at that offensive line and think that it couldn't improve talent wise. I, I think last year we were probably more bullish on it than we are now. I mean, you know, last year Sharping was coming off a solid rookie year. Titus Howard played well in limited snaps. Nick Martin was okay. Uh, Zach Fulton was still the weak link last year, just like he was this year. And then you had Larry Laramie Tunsil at the, on the left side. I think a good offensive line coach and a better scheme, a more creative scheme will go a long way towards making the offensive line better. Deshaun Watson's always going to take sacks just by virtue of how he plays. 
It's not always going to be on the offensive line, but there were still way too many times, especially in the interior, that he just got blown up because he had no chance to get rid of the ball because, you know, Fulton or Sharping or Martin were just getting smoked off the snap. So I think it's got to be a combination of both. You need to get a real live offensive line coach in here that can make upgrades. And then also, especially on the interior of the line, you got to you got to address the talent deficiency with Zach Fulton. If if nothing else. In 2021, there has to be a different right guard than Zach Fulton. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you can keep everybody. And, like, I wouldn't mind seeing Martin go just because of how much of his contract is. And, like, you know, salary cap space is a premium from here on out because I think Tunsil and Watson are due a combined $65 million together next year. And, like, for that yeah. reason alone, like, every every contract that you have is a lot more important than what it is whoever Watson's paying, you know, $4 million. And so for that reason, like, Martin being as mediocre as he is, you know, getting paid as much as he is, I think it's a hard spot to be in, but like hopefully whoever becomes the next offensive line coach, they can do it. But yeah, I agree. They need at least get somebody else to play right guard next year too. And, and that's probably a spot that depending on who you hire as general manager, you don't, you're not going to necessarily, you can find good offensive linemen in the middle to late rounds of the draft, but it's probably unreasonable for any of those guys, unreasonable to expect any of the, those guys to come in and contribute as rookies. So it's probably something that, you know, you need to be shopping in the veteran free agent pool for a budget, so to speak, guard that can come in, start on a one or two year deal and sort of stabilize that line while you're hopefully waiting for if you're able to draft some some project guards to sort of develop and be able to plug in in a year or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I think Quinn Spain from two years ago in Tennessee is a really good example of that. Yeah. Like they just got him out of nowhere. They, and like even Tennessee drafted Aaron Brewer from Texas State. And he weighs 272, and he's like played guard pretty well. And like they have David Questmere playing left tackle right now. And so I do think coaching has a lot to do with the problems they've had there. But there are ways like they can improve the right guard spot without having to like really break the bank for it. Like you don't have to pay somebody as much as you paid Zach, uh, Zach Fulton to be able to have right. that production that you need from there. So our next question is from at Zenofon212730. And he asks, should Mike Devlin go through the spanking machine on his way out of NRG? If so, the Texans should auction tickets to the fans to be in on it. The line will go all the way to Westheimer. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that out of all the sort of – and we've seen some turnover in the coaching staff throughout O'Brien's time here, not near as much as, as you might have expected for somebody who sort of managed the way he did, especially these last couple of years. But Mike Devlin truly was a sacred cow of sorts in that you never, ever heard of him having any potential exposure, his job being in danger, anything like that, despite the fact that you could look at that offensive line, especially before Tunsil got there, mm-hmm. and, and ask, what are you doing? Um, I think you know part of it, too, is I will readily admit I got very spoiled living in a world where Gary Kubiak, with his offense, was able to find these guys, plug and play, you know, undrafted rookie free agents or sixth round picks like Mike Brizel, guys like that that would come in and play at a high level. He would, and, and whether it was him or whether it was Alex Gibbs or whoever was, was coaching the offensive line at that point was really able to coach him up. I don't know that there's a single offensive lineman that you can say got better during Mike Devlin's time here. Yeah, I, you can't. I think um, Howard got a little bit better from last year too, but like a first round pick. You'd expect he's playing as much as he has to kind of do that naturally to a certain extent. But yeah, like, and now the other thing too is like everybody left got worse. Like, Bram Brooks became an all pro yeah. player. Like, Ben Jones, outstanding. Like, he's a, I mean, he's kind of a piggy, but he's like beautiful in Tennessee in their outside zone scheme. Um, 
in, you know, you saw Jeff Allen come here and get worse. You saw Zach yep. Fulton come here and get worse. And you know, the list goes on and on and on, you know. And it's just, it, it's just, you look at the guys that, that he's supposed to be developing or coaching up. And I just don't know that there's really any of them that you can say got bet, better under his tutelage. I mean, Laramie Tunsil was already a high level player when he got here. I don't know if you would say that he got that much better since he's been here under Devlin's watch. And then the rest of the guys, I don't know that you can really say that it's been the arrow pointing up for guys like Nick Martin, uh, Zach Fulton, Senio Kelamete, Max Sharping, all those. I mean, I just don't know that you can really say that they've gotten that much better. If it truly is just a coaching issue, that'd be awesome because then maybe you've got enough talent on the roster to uh, address most of the issues on the line. But I think more than likely, you know, it's probably a combination of talent and coaching. So it's who they hire to be the offense, whoever the new coach is, what kind of scheme he runs, who's he hired to be the offensive line coach. It's going to be really, really interesting to see what, if any, changes we see in how the offensive line performs under new under new guidance. Mm-hmm. And even some of that, too, it's like whoever the next offensive coach is going to be. Like, the Texans have tried to run every run scheme out there, and they're not good at any of them. But they try everything right. they can. But just, like, picking a scheme like, okay, we're a gap scheme team. We're going to run inside zone and duo, or we're going to run a lot of power run plays, or we're running outside zone. Just if You can just, like, get good at running one play and like getting guys coached up to run a certain play, like I think that would make a huge amount of difference instead of trying to run a little bit of everything being bad at everything. And so I think that will be a really big like point of impact for whoever coaches this team next year too. And then, you know, even this year, you've got two very capable receiving backs in Duke Johnson and David Johnson, and you still insist on running a traditional offense that doesn't ever put them in space, that rarely splits them out wide. I mean, I think it was... I understand it wasn't feasible to, to go empty backfield the entire season, but as the season went on, having having the pretense of a run game when everyone knew it, was, it wasn't going to succeed, it was inevitably going to fail and put you into bad down and distance situations, why not embrace the fact that you have these running backs that are good at different things and take advantage of that instead of trying to cram that square peg into a round hole over and over again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it's kind of funny too, like whenever the run game was better, in, in like a sense, like with heavy quotation marks, you know, against Cincinnati and even when David Johnson broke some big runs um, in that game, like a lot of it's just because they went to empty and you have the defense spread out and you have five guys in the box and now you right. have one block and now David Johnson has 30 yards to run. Like it wasn't and like Johnson broke some carries and ran through some stuff, but it was like one cut and very, very easy reads, plenty of space to run through. Uh, that was the difference between week three and week, you know, uh, 15 is that you're running to throw the ball instead of trying to establish the run and throw to run, uh, run to throw, which doesn't work, and especially a quarterback like Watson makes zero sense whatsoever. And it's not like we've been kind of hollering about on this show for, I don't know, like four years or whatever it's been. <laughs> Way too long, you know? And uh, it was really beautiful like finally see this thing that we've been talking about for so long, like see a really great example of it in like the most meaningless set of circumstances uh, out there for Houston football. Yeah, just and just flashes of it. It never stuck. It was always just flashes, and you would you would... Try to hope that maybe that sort of represented some sort of breakthrough in how they would adjust the offense to their personnel, but it just never materialized. Whether it was Duke Johnson, David Johnson, Lamar Miller, whoever, this offense always just ran the same plays. And and the thing is, they weren't running them because they worked. They ran them despite the fact that they never worked. It was like, we just have to run to run so they don't know that we're passing every time. And inevitably, what you're looking at is second and nine, third and seven, you know, and it's it, it's it puts your offense in a hole and puts them behind an eight ball that even just a modicum, a modicum of creativity or a modicum of adjusting 
your scheme to your players could have really, really been a, really, really been a bigger deal. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it's like we're just back here again four years later, just having the same conversations, and I'm really excited right. for the future and not have to be like having like these very like I don't know like elementary ideas like stampeded over and over again. Um, so out of I'm gonna give you a list of players. Which player do you never want to see in Houston again? Carlos Watkins, Whitney Merciless, Brennan Scarlett, Zach Bolton, Darren Fells, David Johnson, Tyrell Adams, Vernon Hargraves III, Brandon Dunn, Philip Gaines. These are all players I don't want to see. Anybody really, uh, really, really, do you have like a big spotlight on it all? Uh, well, I mean, I think out of those, it's it's sad that you're listing these names and I'm going, yep, him, no way, probably him, no him, no him. Uh, I guess out of that list, probably Vernon Hargraves. Um, I think that he might have well been the worst on that list you gave in terms of the worst player. I think in terms of the salary, Whitney is is a horrible, horrible bargain for what you're actually paying for him. Um, I don't think that there's any of those guys that I would necessarily say you're really excited about keeping moving forward. But if I had to get rid of just one, it would be Vernon Hargraves. Yeah, I can see that too. And it's not like we have a whole lot of, you know, like heart or loyalty attached to him after him kind of like being picked up off the waivers last year and be like, well, I guess we'll just bring him back because, you know, he's tough and smart and dependable and we know exactly what he is and we can give him you know, $1.5 million to hopefully never play the slot and he ended up being there yeah. starting outside cornerback for the entire season. And, and you know, it's none of these, it, it's, it's easy. We, I, I certainly am guilty of sometimes forgetting like, it's not any of these guys fault for getting paid what they can get paid. They should. If someone's willing to, if you're Whitney Merciless and at this stage of your career, Bill O'Brien's willing, to give you $54 million or whatever it was, four years, $54 million that I think had 28 guaranteed. You know, it's not like Whitney Merciless should say, no, that's a bad, that, you know, that's, that's a bad decision, Bill. I'm not worth that. He absolutely should get every dime he can. Same with a guy like Eric Murray. Mm-hmm. There is not a world in which Eric Murray should ever be turning down five to $6 million a year if someone is dumb enough to give it to him. So all those guys, as frustrating as it is to watch them, um, you know, I certainly don't hold any any ill will towards them. It's just at least Vernon Hargraves didn't cost a lot of money to be as bad as he was. Yeah, exactly. Well, and like Winnie Merciless, I think there's be Mercilesses who are still gonna be able to go to college in the year 2400 after the contract <laughs> that Bill O'Brien. So good for them. Good for his whole family. Too, yeah, you know? good for them is right, man. I mean, these guys have such a short shelf life. Most of them go get paid what you can when you can, and it's it, unfortunately that means that we have to sometimes sort of look at them and get frustrated and get angry about how they're, how they're making what they're making when all of us would do the exact same thing. It's not like any player is going to say, you know, I really think I'm only worth about a quarter of that. You keep your money and spend it on someone else. Uh, all those guys should get every last dime they can. It's just frustrating to know that we root for a team that willingly gave these market-setting contracts to players that, again, I can't fathom another NFL team giving them anywhere close to that. Yeah, I on the market. Yeah, it's. I was joking around last time. It's kind of like Bill Bryan's contract negotiations. He was just making a mixed drink without a shot glass and just eyeballs. <laughs> like, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, yep. I can. I can yep. stomach that. You know, necessarily uh, kind of felt the entire time. So the Texans are in the middle of their head coaching search and drum man search right now. Like, where do you stand on this? Like, do you want them to go after an offensive mind head coach, a defensive mind head coach, and who are your personal favorite candidates at the moment? You know, there's so much there's so much sort of still out there and everyone's still trying to figure out. I, in terms of the general managers, uh, there's a lot of guys that intrigue me. Um, Ed Dodds in Indianapolis. There's a lot of guys that I'd want to talk to, not necessarily uh, Nick Casario. I don't think that's the guy that, that uh, 
that I'd be that I'd be ecstatic to see come to Houston. Where at you know how strange a year ago, sure, but not now. Um, just because of the what he represents and sort of that it would be the the, the extension of the same thing. I think there's a lot of uh, offensive guys that are intriguing. You know, I remember talking to Rivers. Joe Brady intrigues me a lot, and I saw tonight the Texans apparently requested permission to, to interview him. It, it may well be a year or two too early, which would be very un-Texans of them to, to actually go in that direction, uh, push comes to shove. But I'd rather see a guy like a, a Joe Brady or an Eric Bieniemy or a Matt Eberflus than, say, a, you know, Marvin Lewis. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you the guy that I understand he's he's – he gets. He's not going to get any. There's not going to be any excitement about him. And in fact, the the hire would be panned if they made it. But I think the Texans could do a lot worse than a guy like Jim Caldwell for Deshaun Watson. I don't think that'll be the hire. I think that if you you know if you push me to say who do I think it'll be, I think Eric Bieniemy probably ends up being the guy. From the standpoint of, I think that's probably who Deshaun Watson wants. I think that's probably who most of the locker room would want. And I think that if you're Bieniemy, the opportunity to slide into a job where Deshaun Watson's your quarterback is pretty tempting I think that's probably who it ends up being but there really are a lot of intriguing options out there if if nothing else I'm excited that it appears that they're actually being pretty um that, that their search both for the GM and the coach looks like it's going to be pretty wide-ranging as opposed to just logging into one or two guys and not looking beyond that yeah that's a good way to look at it too I mean I think Caldwell's like the good version of Marvin Lewis or it's not yeah. even that like I would love to see happen, but like yep. I mean it could be worse, I guess, in that sense of it. For me though, like I'm all about getting an offensive guy just because I think the defensive talent's so bad that even if you brought like Eberflus here, like I don't know, I think it would take him like two or three years to make a to create this a good defense while the offense is you may be mediocre or tenth and needs to be fifth best if you get a better offensive coach there. And I think the other thing about uh, him too, it's like he took over the Colts defense in eighteen. That team had a lot of really good players. We just didn't know were really yeah. good players yet. You know, it's like after four weeks of watching them, I remember arguing about with BFT. He's like, they have a good defense. He's like, they're terrible. You know, it's like, no, they're good. You should watch this team. And like you saw Darius Leonard and Anthony Walker and all these guys and Kenny Moore, all these guys sort of take off from that year. And uh, we just didn't know they were good yet, though. So I don't know. I think any defensive coordinator that turn head coach is going to have a really hard time here. So for me, it's all about like getting the most out of Watts. That's one thing that matters. So it's like, I'm number one, Bianami, number two, Brian Dable. And number three, Arthur Smith. And like anything after that doesn't really matter to me. I like Brady. I just think he's a little young. I also kind of, yeah. I just also like, I'm kind of selfish. Like I want to see him in Carolina one more year too. Um, sure. They kind of weird year this year. You know, McCaffrey got hurt. They had a tough schedule. Um, I love Teddy forever. And uh, so like, I like to see him stay there for one more year too, for that reason. I, I would have no problem. And, and out of those names you listed, I would probably put, I, I might even put Arthur Smith at the top of the list. Uh, you know, Bienemy could be one. I think Dable would probably be three. But any of those guys, I wouldn't have a problem with any of them. I think if we're talking about do we want an offensive or defensive head coach, uh, first off, that, that may be a, a difference without a distinction when it comes to running the whole team. But I think the problems on defense are far more talent related than necessarily scheme or coaching or philosophy at this point. If you, in In that way, Finding the general, you know, hiring the right general manager who can plug some of those holes talent wise in creative ways is probably more important because for the immediate future of the team, you're going to have to be outscoring people. You're not going to fix all the holes on defense in just one offseason, probably not even two. So it really you're in terms of strengthening your strength. If you can bring an offensive mind in here that's going to take Deshaun Watson and that offense to another level that's probably going to give you a better chance of winning more games than perhaps improving a defense that's 
absolutely wretched to just bad, at least in terms of 2021. Yeah, and that's exactly how, how I look at it as well, too. And like I kind of feel like we're the same person after you know, speaking to each other for the past <laughs> hour or so. Uh, and our question, we had a question from at Brian Burns Red, and he asked, do you think hiring a defensive-minded head coach such as Sala or Aberfless is enough to fix this defense, or do we need to add additional talent as well? And you know, then we both answered that question. Like Again, I'm very adamant about like, it's all about Watson getting the most out of them. You know, Salah's not going to come in and fix the defense in a year or two years. It needs a complete talent overhaul. It's all about just like providing consistent force with Watson that you can continually expand the offense with and can, and also like keep tinkering as you add more players at his skill set and as the game changes well too. And that's kind of all the only thing that matters with me um, for next year in this head coaching search. So like at, at four and 12 without first or second round pick and sitting at $13 million over the salary cap, um, Tim, is it reasonable to expect Houston to compete for a playoff spot next year solely because of Deshaun Watson? Yes. I mean, that, that's I think essentially what we kind of thought this year was that he would cover up a lot of sins, and he didn't in terms of the win-loss record, which ultimately is, is what you know matters. But uh, I think that it is reasonable when you have a quarterback as special as Deshaun is, I think it's reasonable to expect to contend for a playoff berth. Now, I don't think they're going from 4-12 and 12 to 12-4 and four in a year. I think there's way too many holes. But I don't think it's unreasonable to expect the ball to maybe bounce a little bit more their way that next year and to get to eight or nine wins. And maybe if you really squint, depending on how the record looks, I don't know, maybe 10, just because of how brilliant Deshaun Watson is. If they can bring in a guy that can take the offense up a half level, if they can have some semblance of a running game and get better offensive line play— I don't think it's unreasonable to expect this team to contend for a playoff spot next year. Now, I mean, if they didn't have Deshaun, this would be the most wretched roster in all of football. (laughs) I mean, it it really, he's the only reason to have any hope about the future because he's so special and he's able to overcome so much that if you can just improve the talent level, especially on defense a little bit, you know, instead of four and 12 this year, maybe they're seven and nine. Again, not a playoff team. We we clearly missed on that, but maybe they're you know the ball bounces their way a couple times. The defense isn't quite so bad. They win another couple games. They're not going to go two and eight in one possession games next year. Just not going to happen. So you got to figure that just by the pure chance they'll be better record wise in that regard. And then as Deshaun continues to develop, you bring in a different offense. And also, I mean, don't underestimate the fact that next year they'll be playing a third place division schedule. Yeah. You know, they, they won't have to play the, the top teams in the division uh, like they have the last few years. You're not going to have a four-game stretch like you did uh, to begin this year next year. You're just The talent's not going to be there. So I think that they have a, absolutely they have a chance next year to be a playoff contender. Yeah, I agree, too, just for those same reasons alone as well. Like, and like the next show, general manager is a tough job. Like there's a lot of things that he has to do. I'd make this happen, like, yeah, because of Watson alone. And with the third wildcard spot, too, like, next year, it may not take 10-6 to be the third AFC wildcard team. It may only take, like, 8-8 or 9-7, like, it's in the NFC as well, too. And so, yeah, I think with Watson, they should compete for a playoff spot for, like, the next two years. But it may be, like, three years from now until this team's, like, a legitimate Super Bowl contender again, um, if that's even, you know, feasible at all. My biggest concern, though, is, like, I could see Houston in the future, in, like, the near future, being kind of like how the Packers were in like, you know, 14 and 15 where like Rodgers was incredible, but the team was bad 
and he got hurt, and now they're like eight and seven, and they have to beat Chicago on the road to make the postseason. And some years they don't make it because of those sort of reasons too. And so I could see Houston kind of being like a team with a great quarterback and a bad team for two years that really fights and struggles, even you know get to nine seven, be in those spots where it's extremely frustrating to watch like this franchise quarterback, this like top five quarterback, kind of waste away on a bad team that the same extent. That that is totally in play. I mean, it, you know, I think this year you could just see how frustrated Deshaun was. He'd never experienced this level of losing. And you can't imagine that anyone's ever experienced this many consecutive balls bouncing against them the way that they did this year. I mean, the way that they lost games was was unprecedented. To have that many games, I mean, the games just alone, the way that they lost to the Colts twice. It's nuts. It doesn't happen. Uh, so it's entirely possible that he's, he's facing a depleted and uh, talent-deficient squad you know, for the next year or two as they as they try to get back out of uh, some of the contractual, the bad decisions that were made contractually and the lack of draft pick assets. But if they can nail that general manager hire, I think that certainly next year they can be competitive. And in 2022, maybe you're talking about a team that's sort of on the periphery for if things go right, maybe they could make a run. I don't think this is a team that's that's anything close to a Super Bowl contender, a legitimate Super Bowl contender for at least three years just because of where the roster is now. But I do think they can be a playoff team that if things go their way, you know, they can win a game or two next year. Uh, if they make the playoffs next year, that's a huge turnaround. If the year after that they manage to win a game or two, then then I think the arrow's pointed firmly up. And as long as you have Deshaun Watson under contract and happy, uh, then I think that you're you're in a you're in a spot where you're going to be able to compete week in and week out. Yeah, and Watson's going to keep getting better as well. Like, this isn't the peak for him. Uh, you know, he's only 26 and quarterback's going to peak at 31. Uh, and, you know, like and, and it, the only concern I have, I guess, like you mentioned, if he's happy, you know, he only signed a three-year extension with Houston. And so, like, it's possible, you know, if, if it comes down to, like, two years from now, he has a year left on his deal. Like, what he, you know, if, if Houston's still struggling, he's too frustrated, um, that could be in play in the near future. But that's a that's a very scary thing that we don't need to think about right now. No, it is. It it absolutely is. I mean, we're certainly we're seeing that in some level uh, here with the Rockets, and and that's. I mean, it's it's a possibility that when you when the players have agency like that, sometimes it can come back and and bite you. What what I would say though is that I think in football, they seem like they that McNair has at least seemed like he's trying to get Deshaun involved in the process. Now, I don't think that we're in a world where your quarterback should be picking your head coach and general manager, but I think that you absolutely should be letting him have a voice and sort of being kept apprised of the proceedings and the interview process and all those sorts of things because you want him to feel invested more so than he is right now um, in the, the, the franchise moving forward. So if they hire a general manager and a coach that he likes and respects, again, not saying he should be the the, the, the guy picking it, but if you hire somebody that he's excited about working with, that he's going to succeed with, I think you have a chance to sort of diminish a lot of those concerns about what happens in another few years. You know, and in football, the power of the franchise tag is such a big deal. Um, and, you know, once you have him locked up for a few years, if you wanted to franchise tag him, I mean, it, it really is something that is still there. The fact that they were able to get him under contract when they were, because, I mean, if you think yeah. about it. If they hadn't, if they hadn't gotten him signed and sealed before the season started, I don't think that he would have seen anything this year that would have made him want to sign an extension. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it, it was a little bit, it was a little bit lucky that they were able to get him inked before you know they ran into the iceberg this year because you know you've got him for another few years and you hope that over that time you're able to build on it and show that hey, 
this is a situation where you want to be here moving forward. Yeah, and, and thank God for, you know, they were able to at least do one thing, right, which was, you know, sign Watson to an extension this summer and ensure, like, yep. that didn't become, like, a storyline after, you know, they're 0-4 and he's frustrated and, you know, trying to find himself, like, during this entire train wreck. Yeah, can you imagine the questions that he would have had to field throughout the course of the year when things got darker and darker and, you know, do you, do you foresee yourself being here? Do you want to be here? I mean, he, I, it would, I wouldn't have held anything against him for him to say, this is not fun right now. I'm going to wait till the offseason and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they were really fortunate that they were able to get him to sign when he did um, for – and granted, you know, he's, he's going to be making a ton of money. It's a record-setting deal, but – He's the only reason that this roster isn't the worst in the NFL. Yeah, exactly. He is it. Exactly. He is it. Um, and so having him, you know, the Jaguars job is attractive for a lot of different reasons in terms of the fine, the cap space and the draft picks and the, the opportunity to potentially get Trevor Lawrence. But I mean, as good as everyone thinks Trevor Lawrence will be, assuming he does come out, uh, you know, you already know what Deshaun Watson is. And jobs with a guy like Deshaun Watson as your quarterback, they just don't don't op- open up very frequently. They're usually career makers. You look at Mike McCarthy with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, those jobs just don't open up. You have one of those guys, you're almost always going to be competing for playoff spots, division titles. So for this opportunity to come up in Houston with Deshaun being a, a proven franchise quarterback at this point, it's got to still be a really, really enticing job. Mm, yeah, I have a third. Well, I have it. Yeah, I have a third. I have, uh, I have the Chargers one. I have the Jets two, and then I have Houston third. No, I actually have the. I have them fourth. I have Chargers one, Jaguars two, Jets third, and then Houston fourth. Why would you say? And I assume that the thought process behind the Chargers is that they just have more talent. You've got a young franchise quarterback on a rookie deal. Um, that's why it's a it's as proven a thing as you can get in terms of walking into that situation because they've got talent on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you think the Jets are two? Well, I have the Jets third. I have the Jags too. I said that wrong. Just because you can take Lawrence and then you have two first round picks. You're gonna have like ninety million dollars in cap space. You have eleven picks this year, and like you're also drafting you thirty know, third as well, and like you know sixty seventh, whatever comes out too. And like they have a lot of young talent too on that roster. It was pretty remarkable they were able to pull off going one and fifteen this year. And then with the Jets, like at two overall, you can take Fields. You can trade down if you don't want Fields. You can who knows what's going on with Darnold if you actually give him an offensive head coach. But you can also use him as a trade piece as well. And like I think they have like a pretty good defense. They just have a lot of guys who might knows about. And offensively it's a mess. But again, like who kind of knows there with how bad Gase has been um the previous two seasons. And then with Watson, like as great as Watson is, there's just so many things like going wrong here that it's easier to like start completely new with like a, a, a easy a new template than it is to like completely put together like a, a dilapidated house that has like a really nice kitchen, which is what Houston has. Yeah, I think I mean I think that you could easily make a case for the Texans being the most attractive opening purely because of Watson. Uh, he's he's done it for longer than Herbert had than Justin Herbert has. Although I think the Chargers have more young talent on uh, across the board than than the Texans do. I do think the Texans' offense at this point might actually be a little bit underrated. Just if you do if you do franchise Fuller and you you figure out a way to bring Cooks back, um, you know your real holes are sort of in the interior of the offensive line and at running back, which are two positions that frankly shouldn't cost a whole lot of assets to address uh, or a whole lot of uh, money to address. I think you can look at the Texans job. I certainly would put it ahead of the Jets. Uh, and I think that uh, if Trevor Lawrence comes out and, in fact, you're, and, and there's no reason to think he wouldn't unless he just doesn't want to be a Jaguar. Um, but I think that you could really, because of Deshaun being the proven 
you know, gym of all these quarterbacks that are looking for coaches, I think you could make a case that the Texans might be the most attractive if, if Jack Easterby is no longer on the payroll. If Jack Easterby remains on the payroll, I cannot fathom why any general manager or head coach with options would want to come here. Yeah, and that's kind of like the big, like, you know, Cobra is still in the bed or whatever. Like, who knows what's exactly going on there? Who knows how much influence he has in, like, the general manager and coaching decision? And, like, who knows, like, if he's going to stay around and what they're going to do with him if he does and what his role is going to be? And, I mean, I, I really have no idea at all what's going on there. And I think anybody who says they do really has no clue uh, at all either because it's just a such, like, weird and unique situation that you don't see in, like, uh, you only see, like, in Western novels or, you know, science fiction or um, something of that nature. I, I think that whoever the whoever they offer the GM gig to, I think one of the conditions of him accepting the offer has to be that Jack Easterbeer is no longer a Texans employee. I think it. Ha I think it's it's a, and to a lesser degree the head coach the same way. But I don't think there's any way because I think that if you allow Cal McNair to keep Jack Easterby around, if you don't make that contingent on you accepting the job, if you're the Texans' choice. I don't think there's any reason to think that that Cal McNair would get rid of Jack Easterby unless it was going to cost him the opportunity to hire someone who could get the team back where it needs to be quicker. I would hope that whoever they offer the GM job to says, because Cal has said it'll be the general manager's decision. I would hope that whoever that individual is says, if you really want me to come to Houston, you have to get rid of Jack Easterby. He needs to be fired before I'll take the job. If they, if whoever the GM is doesn't do that or says, oh, we'll work together, I think this is doomed to fail. And then you're looking at a situation where you're wasting even more of Deshaun Watson's prime. And maybe you're steering towards that inevitable moment where he says, man, I don't want to be around this anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why the Nick Casario thing, like, I know they're trying to interview everybody they can. But when I saw this more, I was like, I mean, come on. Like, just like the optics yeah. of it are just so absurd. And, and yeah. like, the fact that you try to move forward and, like, go through that whole thing, like, two years ago, that was so just embarrassing you know, all around yep. from firing Brian Gain to the cocktail meeting to try and hire him to get hit the hazard, um, the tampering charges to rescinding it. And then ending up with like Easter being O'Brien at the, at that role. It was just so unbelievable. You know, it was totally botched, you know, from, from the jump. I don't think there's any real doubt that Easterby played a big role in sort of that attempted coup of getting Gain out. And, and O'Brien's hands weren't clean either. But they, I, the only reason they fired Brian Gain was because I think they thought they were getting Nick Casario. And then for that to blow up in their face, that alone should have been a reason to say, I've got the wrong guys making the decisions here. But instead, at the at worst case, you would hope that <laughs> Cal McNair looks around at what's going, what's gone on this last year and says, the people who have put this in motion to be where it is cannot be allowed to be responsible at all for what's happening moving forward. So I really hope that whoever the GM is says as a condition, and, and if Cal won't make that promise, if Cal won't let that happen, then if you're the general manager, presumably you've got options. Maybe not another one this year. Maybe you wait a year or two, whatever it is. I, though, if I was a general manager, because a lot of these guys only get one shot at this, mm -hmm. I would say this is this is – this is not. This is a condition that I won't bend on. If you're going to keep him around in any way, shape, or form, I'm not coming. So you have to decide what's more important to you. I think that's probably the most surefire way to ensure he's not here. Because without that happening, I, I I think I share everybody's concern that that I would worry that Cal would keep him around and try to say, well, he's not involved in football operations or football decisions anymore, and then we're we're in the same spot again. Uh, yeah, I hope so too. I like the way that you word that as well. 
Um, what was your favorite part of the Monday morning quarterback article? Or I guess the Sports Illustrated article. Because mine, it was Easterby writing the little notes and putting the locker room in the, in the lockers like you know, they're playing high school football like the moms would do to decorate the <laughs> locker room before they get. And that was my favorite part. And then being upset when like, guys would throw it away and stuff. I think, you know, your favorite part, I think my favorite part was probably towards the end of the article where, where it sort of uh, indicated that, that the walls may have been closing in a little bit on Easterby and that people were started, sort of starting to get hip to, to what he had, to his machinations and what had happened. Um, the thing that will obviously stick with me the most is Easterby declaring that uh, DeAndre, they needed to get rid of DeAndre Hopkins. They had to move on from that guy or however he put it. Um, it's just it's completely nuts to me. And there's always going to be, you know, speculation, rumors. Why did what, you know, why did, was there stuff that we didn't know? That's entirely possible. And that's why I've always said, I think getting rid of DeAndre Hopkins is a bad football decision, but I, I'll readily admit there could be a whole lot of things going on that we didn't know about. What I will never understand ever is how the best return that you could have gotten for him was David Johnson, a second round pick, and I guess a future fourth in exchange for DeAndre and what a fourth or a fifth. Yeah. I'll never understand the return. Mm -hmm. I'll readily admit there could have been stuff going on that none of us are privy to that would have made it that, that would have behooved them to get to, to move on from DeAndre. I know there's a lot of talk and rumors to that effect that maybe there's some justification for it. Even assuming that's true, it still doesn't excuse the terrible return they got. Yeah. And, uh, and like the other thing I'll remember about that, like just like going forward whenever um, it comes about football, like remote football and talking, Ryan Bell is that whenever like rumors come up, there has to be some level of truth to it. Cause like even not even like in 2020, but in 2019, they're like that. There was that weird DeAndre Hopkins trade rumor. And it was like, yeah, yeah that's stupid. That's never going to happen. And like in the article, it talked about how New Eastbury wanted to trade DeAndre Hopkins at 19, yeah. you know? And so like, I do think from now on, like whenever there's any sort of rumor or anything kind of floating around, there's some level of truth to it. And we kind of saw that this year. And what's funny about the morning that Trey was more, the Monday morning quarterback had uh, Peter King wrote about how like there is DeAndre Hopkins trade rumors and the entire Texans Twitter was like, this is stupid. You're an idiot, Peter yep. King. And then he had, he had trained an hour and a half later for David Johnson. And so I do think it's something like to remember moving forward as well. Yeah, I wrote, I literally tweeted minutes before the trade broke <laughs> that it was completely asinine that DeAndre Hopkins had a better chance of getting a contract extension and retiring a Texan than he ever did of getting traded. And within half an hour, it's he's going to Arizona for David Johnson and a second round pick. I mean, it's just that that's an interesting point you make about, you know, there being some level of truth in it. I think you always have to kind of think about what are the potential agendas at play um, in terms of getting rid of, you know, of why these rumors would be floated, why are coaches being, you know, that sort of thing. But it, I think that at least in that case, it bore it out that, and I think it was, um, I don't know if it was Jay Glazer or somebody else had animated a year before that there was a big time wide receiver that could potentially be on the trade market. He didn't say who it was. And then after Hopkins was traded, he confirmed that's who he was talking about a year before. Dang. Yeah, I remember that one. And uh, I remember also, too, there was a David Johnson trade rumors to Houston. I'm like, why? I was like, he was their yeah. third best. He was their third best running back last year. Like, Hayden Drake was better. Edmonds was better. Like, why would you do this unless you're getting a pick back for it? I remember spending time, like, on the internet arguing people, like, David Johnson's bad. He's bad. He's bad. And then yeah. that whole thing happened. And I like, I still can't believe it's real. Like, I, I feel like I died that day and we all kind of collectively died, you know, all together. We did. We it all was, drank the Kool-Aid together. It was, it was a, it was a kick to the gut. And, and you know, the, 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 the other crazy part is as, as absurdly stupid as the Texans looked for trading Hopkins, the, you know, when the, I think the Cardinals started out five and two, 
their season totally fell apart mm-hmm. at the end. You know, whether it was uh, Murray being hurt or, or Kingsbury's play calling or decision making or whatever, I don't think that uh, that that DeAndre had the kind of season, uh, at least the second half kind of season that we thought he would to the point that, you know, I, I was actually thinking last night when the Cardinals missed the playoffs. I wonder if you gave him truth serum and you told him, hey, you could still be in, in Houston and Bill O'Brien would be gone. Um, you'd be here with with Deshaun Watson. I wonder, it obviously wasn't his decision to be traded, but I wonder if, if he wouldn't have rather had that a year later uh, as opposed to being where he is. Oh, I think he completely does. Like, I think he missed Deshaun Watson all year long. Like, by him like tweeting about, like, Watson's great, Will Fuller's number one wide receiver, like, at home, you know. I think it's kind of part of it. Like, I think he did miss some. And I was, I really didn't like watching Arizona for a lot of times this year because it's like, it's third and four, and it's DeAndre Hopkins running a speed out, and he has six catches just like that. And it sucks. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I like the idea of the air raid, but what Kingsbury's running isn't the air raid how it should be run in the NFL. Um, just like, just how he used Hopkins this year was just really absurd and just really kind of. Well, I, said, I, I read something today. It was either today or in the last week that, that he just always lined him up at, at like the same spot, like the left boundary. That was it. He never moved him around, never lined him up anywhere else. And it was just the same spot every time. And it was just speed, um, speed which, outs on third down or like a slant. Yeah, which, you know, we, we bash Bill O'Brien deservedly so for many, many reasons. But I think that you can say, at least during those last few years here, he did a better job of moving Hopkins around. Yeah, he made him like definitely a guy who consistently gets you first downs, and like he lost his efficiency and effectiveness, and they didn't run down vertical routes enough. Right, uh, but like yeah, like he was like Travis Kelsey in that offense last year, and that was very valuable. And Houston didn't have that this year, and you know Hopkins like and Murray didn't really work out that well this year. And I do think Hopkins did miss Watson, and um, I think Kingsbury did a poor job like calling plays this year too. And yet, and that's the craziest part of it all is Deshaun Watson had his best year this year without DeAndre Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Which, it, you know, I don't think, I know that we all kind of hoped that maybe this this uh, reconstructed wide receiving crew might be a reasonable facsimile and that they wouldn't lose too much not having Hopkins. And Deshaun still managed to exceed those expectations. Yeah, I think so. And I think it has to do like Watson's growth. I don't think he got better because Hopkins wasn't here. I think I better right. inspired Hopkins not being here. And like, yeah, like really good young players tend to get better. And I think we saw that with Watson this year too. Um, we had a couple other listener questions from at Brian Burns Red, at Confused Lefty, at the one only Arthur underscore Fox H. But these are all like having to do with the offseason, like cap cuts and free agents and how to fix this mess. And I want to save that for after the postseason whenever I can go back and see like how empty Assam Reddick's sacks are because he had five against the Giants in one game and he had six other sacks the rest of the year. And that sort of thing. I'll be better prepared for it. Um, but before we end tonight's show, Tim, is there anything else that you want to add or anything else you want to ask or anything you need off your chest at all? Well, lots, lots, sure, lots of things to get off my chest. But, <laughs> but more importantly, uh, you know, I think that that even though the Texans, I think they've got I think Texans cap tweeted this morning something effective. They had about nine million. They were about nine million dollars under the cap entering the offseason. There are ways that they can really, really increase that number dramatically. Um, the single biggest one being, what do they do with JJ Watt? Yeah. Um, one of the guys from a, a Vikings site, I think it was called Vikings Gazette, uh, emailed me the other day and, and asked about, you know, well, is JJ Watt really available in trade? What do you think it would cost? Would he consider going? And I, ultimately, whether JJ goes or not probably comes down to what JJ wants. But what you can get for him. Uh, you're not getting a first. I don't really necessarily think you're getting a second. If someone offered you a second, I think from a football perspective, you probably jump on it. 
But if you could get a third for him, you know, and he wants to go, you probably you probably make the trade. The more interesting decision is, and I can't imagine they would do this because it wouldn't make them a better team. But you know, he's got a seventeen and a half million dollar salary next year. If he's not on your roster, that's a pretty big that's a pretty big chunk of change that opens up. Um, I think you're stuck with Merciless for another year. You may cut him and just eat the money just because he's costing you a roster spot that you could use elsewhere. Um, same deal with McKinney, a guy like that. There's a ways to really free up a bunch of money. It doesn't mean that they're all that they're all going to be um, that there's not going to be cap consequences, but you can free up a pretty a pretty uh, sizable amount of money with some of these cuts. Now, I don't think you get rid of I don't think you can get rid of Randall Cobb or Eric Murray necessarily this year from a cap perspective, but it's going to be really interesting to me, whoever the new GM is, how aggressively he tries to pair that cap now and maybe decides that he's going to go ahead and, and eat the turd sandwich in <laughs> 2021 in terms of cap consequences in order to have a lot more availability, a lot less, uh, a lot less leash, so to speak in um, 2022. Yeah, I could see that as well. I just take the cap hits because like they would save two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. They kept Murray, and then they lose three point five million. They kept Merciless, right? And just like free up roster spots is valuable though. And just be like, okay, we don't have these guys who we know who they are. These dinosaurs. We're probably all that great this year, but at least like we're giving guys chances to see if they're gonna be part of the next good Texans team. That's what this year's about. Um, even as good as Watson is in the same sense. So yeah, they can get under the cap. There are things that they can do like you know with Cooks with Watt. I think like I agree with you with Watt. Like if you get a second, you have to do it. If you offer a third, I think you would. But I think you'd also try to get another player in addition to it as well. Um, kind of like how they got Jacob Marr in the Clowney trade, just like maybe like a fifth or sixth round prospect who's interesting enough too. McKinney I think is gone for sure, which breaks my heart. And like I love McKinney, and I think yep. a lot of people realize how important McKinney was to this defense this year by one like how bad your Cunningham had, and also like watching Tyrell Adams out there just like sling guys around and not make that much of an impact, miss a ton of tackles. And, uh, but I, I think McKinney's gone as well, too, for sure. And like, yeah, like there's a lot, of, like even like Calamente can be cut. There's a lot of fringe roster guys that can be cut too. Uh, David Johnson, Duke Johnson. And so, yeah, like yeah. they can create $50 million of calf space, but it depends on like how far they want to gut everything. It, it really, it really is going to be interesting to see how the GM attacks that. And, and, you know, JJ, I think the thing that we don't know about JJ is, because of the relationship he has with the city, the relationship he has with the fan base, I can't imagine he would ever publicly come out and say he wants out. Uh, but he may well say he may well make that clear to the organization. And at that point, with what he's done and, and where he is in his career, do you accommodate him, even if it means you get slaughtered in the media for trading away this icon? Uh, so it's going to take it, whoever the new GM is. If JJ does decide he wants out and wants to go chase a ring somewhere else. That that one of his very first decisions is going to be one that gets him uh, really, I think, sort of in the crosshairs of a lot of the fan base that can't fathom the Texans without J.J. Watt. And the tough part for whoever that is, if Watt's people have said he wants to be traded, he wants out, but won't publicly won't publicly state that that new GM is more or less going to have to make a stand of I'm doing this because it's the best thing for our team. Yeah. And that's going to that's going to upset a lot of the fan base, especially if the return is. You know, we, we say that that he could potentially fetch a third. Maybe he couldn't. You know, I mean, he, he had he had his moments this year. I think he's worth a third round pick. But, you know, maybe the market's not that. And uh, certainly there may not be a market to pay him seventeen and a half million dollars next year. So it, it really is going to be interesting to see what the new GM does. I think that's the biggest and potentially the thorniest issue that that person's going to face 
um, when he takes over the franchise. Yeah, and that's interesting too. Like I didn't think of that as far as like the general manager search goes. It's like that's something you get to ask. You know, whoever is you're hiring, like what would you do about JJ Watt? Like what do you think about him? Um, and like how, however he decides to navigate that, like the personnel side of it, like the subjective side of it's like very important too. I'm just trying to get like this team behind him and like this whole fan base behind him after, um, you know, it's like really like, like it's like two parents that go into like a really bad divorce and you're like the new boyfriend comes in. You're very afraid of it. You know, like, you know, like this is, you're waiting for something bad to happen again. And it's like, that's going to be like a very interesting that's going to occur, um, you know, next summer and pretty quickly. Yeah, and remember, you know, there were rumors back in 2006 when Gary Kubiak got the Texans head coaching job that that Bob McNair wanted whoever the next coach was to tell him that David Carr could be fixed. He was invested in David Carr. He wanted David Carr to be the quarterback. He wanted whoever the new coach was to say, I can fix this. And that if you said it was beyond repair, that inevitably meant that you weren't going to get the job. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if Cal McNair is, is in some way cut from the same cloth when it comes to J.J. and says, hey, look, we're not trading J.J. J.J.'s going to be here. Are you willing to are you willing to essentially um, roll over on that, even if you think that potentially trading him for a second or a third or a fourth round pick would make the team better? You have to understand that this is a mandate from ownership. J.J. Watt doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and so does that does that limit does that limit potentially the audience that you could get various general manager candidates? My guess is that it's much less of a big deal because J.J. is only under contract for one more year. But I think that it's something to kind of monitor moving forward, because I think that, that the McNairs have made it clear how much J.J. meets to the organization. And are they going to allow a new general manager if he thinks it's in the best interest of the team to move on from him? knowing that they will get crushed in the media and from the fan base for getting rid of a guy that's meant so much to the city for the last 10 years. Yeah, that's wild. And again, like, I never really thought about that, that part of it all. Uh, you know, you mentioning, you know, David Carr and, and that whole thing that happened in 06. I think Gary Kubiak's game where Carr, you know, completely like 22 passes in a row. I think Kubiak did that. Be like, see, look, we can't do this. You know, all <laughs> next year, we have to get rid of him. Uh, this is the most <laughs> I can get out of like 22 straight three guard passes. It, it was it was nuts. And I mean, and he and, and David Carr had probably the best year of his career uh, that one year under Kubiak. But it was very clear uh, pretty quickly early on that year that it just wasn't going to work. And I, I think truth be told, it was probably it was probably clear before that. But there was still so many people invested in Carr and, and what he, you know, first first pick of the franchise and, and that he could potentially be the guy. It, it took longer than it should have. But you're right. Kubiak sort of masterstroke. I mean, I, you know. And then certainly before Kubiak arrived, with when Joe Pendry took over the offense, we were doing three three step drops and get it out um, to just to hide David Carr uh, from having to actually play quarterback. Um, it, it's really, really going to be something to watch because Watt has such a special connection. I think with the city, with the fan base, with the McNair family. What? How are they going to handle it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. I think like after, as soon as I think it's been kind of the key thing about the offseason from or that's been the big story about the offseason, once the head coach is hired, once the general manager hired, and then all of a sudden immediately it's going to flip to, what are they going to do with J.J. Watt? And I think that's yep. going to be kind of the driving point from like February all the way till you know, March. And then after that, it's kind of NFL draft time from that point on. But I do yeah. think that's going to be the big story, though, for sure. Yeah, and, and you know the good news for us is we don't need to worry as much about the draft. Our, our Thursday night's free. Um, Friday night, we really don't need to probably check in until what uh, – Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, something like that. Um, we don't need to worry about first or second round picks this year. 
Yeah, I don't know what I'm like. I the way I do it is I always care about free agency, and then once that ends, I'll start watching like prospects who I think Houston could take, uh, just based off like what holes they have. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I can handle watching cornerbacks <laughs> from like Midwestern Tennessee State on like the broadcast <laughs> view. You know, I don't know if I can do it or not. But we'll figure we'll well, fi- we'll figure it out. The itch may be there I'm by the time back. it shows up. I mean, what what was it? 2018? They didn't have a pick in the first or second round, and Justin Reed was the first pick. Yeah. Uh, I just remember how boring the lead up to the draft was. Mock drafts didn't matter. You you could occasionally search for a three a three round mock draft and sort of get some sort of morsel, but the rest of the stuff, and especially in a year like this, that's the most disappointing part. The team was garbage, but we don't even have the benefit of knowing. All right, well, let's see who could. T- I guess maybe that's the benefit. Sort of the, the 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 silver lining is that we don't have to worry about who to take at three. Uh, whether it be Alabama's wide receiver or, or, you know, other other help or tackles or anything like that. We just we can, you know, hang out till pick number 67 without a care in the world. <laughs> yeah. And also, I like everybody who whenever that tensile trade was made, it was like, well, it's going to be a pick in the 20s because the Texans are going to be really good in 2021. And we already know that. Always. And, you know, that's going to happen for sure. And like football is a mercurial game. It's like very high variance. You have no idea what's going to happen one year or the next. And uh, for this to happen the way it did, like it's even it 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 got it's even worse than I thought it could possibly have been. Whenever I talked about how I hate the tensile trade and you know nineteen, and here it is, and it's even worse than uh, my wildest dreams. Yeah, I I don't think anybody. I, I, there were a lot of critics of the tensile trade. I think deservedly so at the time. Um, but the other part of it was, as you said, a lot of people thought, well, it's going to hurt but the Texans are still going to be a playoff team or a winning team. And yeah, you'd like to have that pick in the twenties, but if you've got a franchise left tackle, you know, et cetera, et cetera, never in a million years did any of us dream it would be so bad that you're talking about passing on the third overall pick in the first round and the third overall pick in the second round, all for the privilege of paying Laramie Tunson, Tunsil three to $4 million more than any other left tackle, any other tackle, purely because you didn't figure out, you didn't think long enough to try to get him inked before you made the trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also like, and then the results too, it's like Watson is still sacked 50 times. Yep. He's still the worst run yep. offense in football. Like Again, like left tackles are important, but they're not important. I think that dumb movie really warped a lot of people's brains. You know? <laughs> well, it's 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 truly something else that, that here we sit. I mean, I don't think even... As upset as we were at the end of the Chiefs game last year when they when they blew that 24-point lead, I don't think anyone in their wildest dreams thought that it would be torpedoed so severely that less than a year later we're talking about our 4-12 and football team uh, looking for a new general manager, a new coach, uh, and all while hoping that the uh, vice president of football operations, <laughs> former team chaplain or whatever, gets canned. I mean, it's nuts that this is where we are a year later. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it, like, it, it would be nice if we could just like pause it and live in that moment forever uh, when ah, they were up yep. 24-0, but instead we're way over here again. And like it was always a possibility this could have happened, but it's like, yes. again, it's just like, you know, your probabilities. And the worst thing about the Tunsil trade, of course, was you trained Dwayne Brown two years before. And then also like, yep. uh, you know, being in this spot where like they were so desperate that Matt Cleal was bad, which everybody knew he was bad, that ended up leading said train, how badly they, they botched their management, their own talent resources and everything else too. And like, I would like to write an article about like the Dwayne Brown, Dwayne Brown butterfly effect, or even do a podcast about, because it's like, it's even, it's gotten even crazier since I had that idea like two years ago. Like it's gotten even worse um, with this pick being third overall and everything else too. And by the way, the Dwayne Brown trade, not something Bill O'Brien wanted to see happen. 
uh, that's not you know that's not on his check. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to you know a lot of it was the a lot of the uh, the stuff that that Brown had said about Bob McNair. He wanted out. They weren't going to pay him. I don't think that was a Bill, Bill O'Brien move at all. In fact, I think Bill O'Brien was probably pretty firmly against it because it made his football team much, much worse. Um, it's, it's, but, I mean, you know, at the same time, the other side of that is you had Julian Davenport and Martinez Rankin, and those guys didn't play the way at the level at which they should have. Well, certainly Rankin at the level at which he should have for where he was drafted. Davenport was a little bit more of a flyer. Uh, but that's what leads you to a world in which you're giving away the farm to have the right to pay Laramie Tunsil $22 million a year. Yeah, and like even that too, like I still can't believe they went into a season two years in a row where Sandro Henderson yep. was their starting right tackle. Like yep. he was never good in like, you know, 2014 back before he was injured playing times before that. And I mean, it, it's just like, you know, like we're dumb and we don't know anything, but it is fun like to see like how dumb everybody is, how nobody knows anything at all at the same time. Well, and it's just, it also just underscores the fact that how much worse things got when there wasn't an adult or a check on Bill O'Brien. Uh, when you, once Brian Gain was gone and it truly was his keys to the kingdom, uh, things just went from, you know, bad to, I mean, it's, it, he, he, he salted the earth after he burned the franchise down. Deshaun Watson's the only reason to have any sense of optimism about this team moving forward. The good news is he is special enough that I think optimism is warranted, and, and if they get the right guys in here and let them do their jobs, uh, I think that there's a chance that this could be a relatively quick rebuild. Beautiful. I love that. Well, we'll end tonight's show on that note. I don't want to say anything bad or sad again. Let's, uh, let's live in the glow and have it be nice and sunny and wonderful um, and carry on from there. But until next time, whenever we preview the wild card round of the NFL playoffs, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bell Red Radio. Thank you for being on My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. I thought it was pretty good. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.